don't know if you picked up a ministry guide when you came in, but I have the scripture listed there if you want to follow along. If you have a copy of the scripture, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 or dial it up on your smartphone. We're continuing in our study of spiritual warfare. Last week it was part one, today it's part two. Don't ask me how many parts it has, all right? It depends on how well I can either discipline myself or find peace from the Lord to move on faster. I was reading this week and I found that the the British scholar D. Martin Lloyd-Jones prepared an entire volume on Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through 13, and a second volume on Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. So uh, I guess if I preached this for a couple of years, I'd be in good company of at least one uh, theologian, pastor, leader. But trust me, it won't be that long, all right? Last week, we said that spiritual warfare is like going into a movie and putting on the glasses just for long enough to see another dimension that might scare you. Spiritual warfare is something that is unseen, We have an unseen enemy, but the evidences of that unseen enemy are often seen. We can see in our own lives. We can see in our own relationships. We can see as we watch the evening news. We can see as we watch systems break down, even in our own country, and as we watch people fighting against groups of people we see spiritual warfare taking place. And not only can we get caught up into the same methodology, but we can, even in our response to it, be trapped into spiritual warfare. Now, the evil one would love for you to go to one of two extremes when it comes to his work in your life. One, he would like to go to the extreme that you totally ignore him. Or that you create this caricature of a little devil on one side and a little angel on the other. And, and you, you find yourself mocking and laughing at anyone that would talk about the devil or demons or forces of evil. He would love for you to go there. Or he would love for you to go to the other extreme of thinking that everything is about the devil and everything is about the evil one making you do something and you get caught up where you're actually attributing more time to talking about the evil one than you are talking about the father. You see the extremes? Uh, there are a few few of you guys in here, maybe a few girls that, that like football, okay? Uh, I I cannot think about the tactics of the evil one without thinking of a football illustration. So you just tolerate just one, okay? When I was a little boy, I played peewee football. I think it could have have been 75 pounds and under or 95 pounds. I mean, it was just, you know, one of those little where the guys run, you know, the shoulder pads wiggle. You know, that size, that little football, all right? And when we, we went out there, the coach was trying to teach us how to call certain football plays. And he said, okay, this is going to be the even side and this is going to be the odd side. And so if we call a play over here, it'll have that number. And here's what's happening. The ball is coming here. So you, as a guard 
put your helmet on this side and drive him that way. And you, as a tackle, put your helmet on this side and drive him that way. And you'll make a hole. Amazing. It'll be a big lane, and the guy in the backfield can run right through it. Made perfect sense. And they would call the plays, and we would try to block and make this hole right here. And then you get to high school. And all of a sudden, it's not peewee blocking schemes anymore. Because the defensive guy may stunt. What happens if he comes this way? And this guy loops around that way. And so the coach no longer gives you assignments of put your head here and block him that way. He says, that's your man. Put your hat on him and just keep him tied up long enough that the ball can come through here. I don't care which way you block him. You can block him that way. You can block him this way. Just get him away from here because the ball is coming here. Now, do you get the point of the illustration? If not, I just wasted, you know, a minute of my preaching time. Did you, did you get the point? The evil one doesn't care how he gets you out of the hole. He just wants to take you out of the action. To make you mock and minimalize and act like there's no evil forces at work or to consume you with thinking that everything is about the evil one and even make you think he is more powerful than the one who lives in you. We could have talked about greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world if we were quoting those promises earlier, right? So the thing we've got to see as we tiptoe up to this passage and try to learn what it means that the believer is in a battle, we said that every believer has an unseen battle. Often the evidence of that is clearly seen, and we have to remember we do not fight in our strength. So the scripture says, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. So let's put the scripture on the screen. You look at it on your handout if you want to have exact wording, I believe. And let's read these verses together. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand, stand, the next verse says. Now, Remember last week we looked at three commands and these three commands really help to unfold everything else in the text. One, we're to be strengthened by his strength. Finally, be strengthened by the vast by the Lord, by his vast strength. Three different words used for strength there. All attributed to our eternal God and the fact that we need his strength living in us. One of the more profound things I said last week was when I quoted a pastor who said, when the devil comes knocking at your door, send Jesus to answer the door, all right? For you have living in you an incredible one, and you are to be strengthened, not with your strength, but with his. The second command was take up and put on the full armor of God. And 
maybe next time I preach to you, <laughs> we'll get a chance to start walking through some of those pieces of the armor. And then we were commanded to stand, to resist the evil one. Last week, as we introduced this topic, we said the believer's battle is not against flesh and blood. We have a tendency to think that our battle is against other people, but it's not. So many times have I had people seem to personify uh, the devil in my life. And I had to be so careful when those people were representing evil forces as it felt against me. I didn't respond to them personally. But I tried to look beyond what was going on in their life to what was going on in the forces of the devil in and through them to me, and even in their own life. Boy, I remember this one guy. I may have told you about him before. It comes to me often when I preach. Clyde was his name. Clyde hated me. I mean, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, okay? He, he hated me. Whenever he spoke to me, I've never had anyone, saved or lost, speak to me the way Clyde would speak to me. And he would attack me, and he would try to undercut me. And his wife at least pretended to be one of the sweetest ladies in the church, always serving people. We could talk to her about her another time as to how God was working and helping us see the forces she was trying to bring to bear. But Clyde would sit right about there. I won't point to you, Emory. Right, right about behind you, Okay. Every Sunday he would sit there. And I remember I would come out to preach. And it, you know, we had three services. But it uh, seemed like he was probably in the first service usually. But I'd come out to preach and I'd see him. And he, if, if he had superpowers, his eyes would have burned me. All right, you know, It was that kind of look. And he was just staring through me. And it was almost like I'm daring you to say anything worthwhile. I'm going to resist everything you say. And one day I was preaching, I was walking out, we were singing, and I was singing along, and I said, okay, Father, I don't want to get up there and preach. Why do you let him come to church? You know, if I were you, God, I'd just take him out. You know, you've, you ever pray that? You know, like, you know, I'm not you, God, but if I were God, this is what I'd do. You know, I was trying to kind of tell the Lord what he ought to do with Clyde. And as I was going, it was like the Father whispered back to me, don't you think he's probably lost? If Clyde died today, I think he'd just, good Southern saying, bust hell wide open, you know? And then it was like the father said to me, could it be good for you to have to preach knowing that there are people there who may about to die and go to hell if it helps you preach with a broken heart? Isn't it a good thing that I've sent Clyde to church this morning? Father, I'm so sorry because I get the feeling that my fight is against flesh and blood, and it's not. It, it's so clear here that our wrestling, our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not someone else's flesh, my flesh, okay? The scripture talks about those three forces of evil that are at work, the world systems, not, not for God so loved the world, the people of the world, not God created a perfect, beautiful world, not that world, but the world systems of worldliness that would make us try to live for earth 
earthly things and not eternal things. Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is against the world, the flesh, and the evil one and his minions listed here. And we must always remember that our victory has that already not yet component to it. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. And for some reason in God's incredible plan, he has chosen to still let the evil one be loosed on planet earth today. And one day, if you read the end of your Bible, you see that he will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever. The devil knows that his time is limited. But during this age in which we live, he and his forces of evil are loose in the world. And the believer has a battle, not against people, but against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Already conquered, one day totally fulfilled, and now there's a fight in our souls and in our world. So as I looked at that, and I thought about, can I just move on from verses 10 through 13 and try to talk about the pieces of the armor? And I couldn't get past this, put on the full armor of God so that you may able, be able to stand against the tactics of the devil. And I wondered. You know, one of the frustrating things in pastoring is not getting to preach to everybody every Sunday and take everybody through every text and make sure we can move on. Man, I'd just love to have, I, I'm trying to think, is it podcast? Do we create one huge Zoom video call and get everybody to call? I mean, how do I keep sharing the things that I think we need to be shepherded in together from Scripture? And I thought, you know, how many people today sitting there listening to me will have any clue about the tactics of the evil one even in their own life. I wonder today, if, if I passed out little cards and had you write it down and give them back to me, what would be on your card the tactics of the devil? Globally? Personally? What would it be? Would it probably contain things like discouragement? Confusion, loneliness, even in a crowd? Would it contain things like a, a spirit of defeat, controlled by words from others? Would it be pride and materialism? where you're passionately seeking to be fulfilled in something other than in God himself. What, what would his tactics be? And isn't it interesting that his particular tactics, by the way, the word schemes, the word methodia, I just want to start listing for you two or three of these. Here, here's one. Against the tactics, the schemes of a devil, the methodia. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. By the way, did you catch what the winning word was on the spelling bee this week? First of all, I was surprised the ESPN was carrying a spelling bee. 
KK said, it's a sport, honey. I said, it's not a sport, okay? I mean, they, they were getting ready for it. Now, you watch a little basketball. I've seen, I've seen your comments, so watch out. People are watching you, Jay, all right? But, you know, the, the basketball game was getting ready to come on the, the uh, network channel, and on ESPN was the spelling bee. I watched it for a little while, then I left KK watching it, and I went and watched the basketball. You know, one advantage to multiple TVs in the house, all right? Now, a day or so later, I saw the winning word for the spelling bee this year. Don't, don't shout it out. Just count, raise your hand if, you're, if you saw it. Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay. Did you know what it was when you saw it? Most of you could spell it because you've been in church a lot of your life. The winning word was koinonia. Koinonia. You've heard it. You've been taught that that's the Greek word for fellowship coming from the common language of a coin, koinos, and it's spelled with an O in the middle of, for those of you that are trying to write it down, koinonia, all right? And the little boy won with a good Bible word, all right? So here's another good Bible word for you, all right? It, it's a word in the original text, and you hear in it methodology, devil has methodology. He has predictable schemes. And by the way, I don't suggest you spend a lot of time studying your own personal flesh and sinfulness. But if you do, I can only think of one good reason for you to study your own propensities and desires for sinfulness. So that you will recognize that the devil has that same file on you. And it might help you recognize some of the tactics he might try to use on you. But as I read that and I kept thinking, how many people, can, can I just move on in spiritual warfare, put on the full armor of God, and if we go talk about the pieces, we're going to do it so we can stand against the tactics of the devil what are the tactics of the devil? What are they? And then I thought, I remember Paul talking about that. Paul in, in the book of 2 Corinthians talked about people understanding the tactics of the devil. Anybody remember the little discussion he had? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Not on your handout. Didn't even reference it for you. You'll have to, if you want to look it up later. 2 Timothy 2, Paul is making reference to something that happened. I mean, 2 Corinthians 2. Did I keep saying Timothy? 2 Corinthians 2. He's referring to something that happened back in 1 Corinthians. Do you remember? Wasn't it 1 Corinthians? I didn't get the exact reference. Wasn't it 1 Corinthians where he talked about your guy living with his father's wife? It, it was a very blatant sinfulness, a, a public display of not recognizing God's design for a man and a woman. And Paul told them, deal with this guy. 
Don't let him keep pretending he's walking with God coming to church. Deal with him. Confront his sinfulness. Paul was very straight up about that. And they did. But now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's writing to say, okay, you confronted him. Now he's repented. What are you going to do about it? Most people believe this is exactly the one he's talking about. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5. If anyone's caused pain, he has not caused pain to me, but in some degree, not to exaggerate, to all of you. To punish, the punishment of the majority is sufficient for such a person. And now you should forgive and comfort him instead. Otherwise, the one may be overwhelmed by excessive grief. Therefore, I urge you to confirm your love to him. It was for this purpose I wrote, so that I may know your proven character if you are obedient in everything. Now, to whom you forgive anything, I too forgive. For what I have forgiven, I have, if I have forgiven anything, it is for you in the presence of Christ. Here's why I had you turn. This verse, verse 11, in that context, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Or his intentions. And almost every time I read that verse, I say, Paul, maybe you are not ignorant of the devil's schemes. But we are ignorant of the devil's schemes. Now, if I need to work this point so that you'll be ready for me to cover it, I will. Do you think that at least in many cases, you are ignorant of the devil's schemes. I do. I think I am. And I need to be reminded from Scripture the kinds of things he uses and what he would do to undo me. For most of you, you're not interested that much in, in Southern Baptist leadership and Southern Baptist life. You don't know the big names that, that we would put on the platform to preach or to lead us as Southern Baptists. But in recent days, at least three well-known leaders in Southern Baptist life have publicly been disgraced and fallen because of sexual sin and misconduct. And another confronted because he did not handle things related to uh, women and the abuse of women correctly. Southern Baptist leadership right now is in a mess. It's in a total mess. And I wonder, are we ignorant of the schemes of the devil? Not only to know how we need to hold each other accountable and confront sinfulness, but what happens after a person has been confronted, then what? Does the devil also have a scheme there that he would use to make us pridefully think that, sure glad I'm not like that, ignoring the verse, take heed, thinking you stand lest you fall, and I'm sure glad he finally got caught. Have you read the Proverbs lately about what happens when you start thinking someone else is you're glad they got caught and it rolled back on. I mean, there's all kinds of ways we could apply the scripture of these. So I felt like this morning I needed to bring in a little 
drone, if you will, and hover right here over these words for us that we understand the devil and his schemes. It's not the same word in the original text, but it is the same idea as Ephesians, the methods of the devil, 2 Corinthians, the schemes, the designs, the sly ways of the devil. In this one, it was about forgiveness. When sin is very complicated, forgiveness can be extremely complicated. Oh, too many times as pastor, I have dealt with sin in a marriage and I've had to look at the guy and say she doesn't trust you and she shouldn't trust you you violated that trust don't ask her right this minute to forgive you that's not the point the point is are you repentant can we put you into a accountability system with other brothers to let you bring fruit of that repentance. And when it truly appears that you have turned from your sin and you've sought God's forgiveness, then we might come back to her and say, okay, let's talk about could you have a relationship again. But when, when, when sin is complicated, forgiveness can feel very complicated. But there's probably not a more unusual sinfulness than what went on with this dude in Corinthians, in Corinth. And yet Paul says, you got to be careful that you don't let Satan take advantage of you through his schemes. So church, I want to have you turn back to Ephesians chapter 4 on our way back to chapter 6, and I want to go look at one more time this idea is mentioned of a devil having an advantage in our life, specifically, again, as it seems to relate to forgiveness. Ephesians chapter 4. I'm sure Johnny did a great job preaching this when I wasn't here. This is a Sunday I was in the hospital. But I know I didn't comment on this verse because I didn't preach it, all right? He's going through the take these things off, put these things on. And he says in verse 26 of Ephesians 4, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. KK is not here to dispute or correct me. She's with the children. But I think she could bear witness to the fact that when we married, we had both read this verse and we said we would not go to sleep angry at each other. It's caused me to lose a lot of sleep. To have to stay awake at night 
to try to see if we could just find enough agreement that we could go to sleep. Why does he say don't let the sun go down on your anger? Because the longer you hold it, the more complicated it becomes. And one wise teacher said, what you hold in that cup that you think you're going to pour on somebody else and destroy them is an acid that's going to eat you alive before you ever get a chance to pour it on them. So this morning I thought, how fitting if we're going to prepare to go to the Lord's table, how fitting that we remember some of the schemes of the devil. What does he do? He didn't care if he drives you this way, if he drives you that way. He just wants you out of the action. So what happens when you are wronged? Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. Kind of seems like it gives permission for anger. Some of you heard me reference uh, Gary Chapman, five love languages guy. Uh, Gary was a associate pastor in the church I pastored in Carolina for 10 years. And uh, I always loved to hear him preach. And I, I remember talking with him about anger. And Gary said in, in his research, he discovered that anger is a universal emotion. It happens in every culture. It is a God-given capacity to be angry. And where does anger come from? It comes from a perceived, accurately or inaccurately, a perceived wrong. And you say, that's not right. And from the best viewpoint you have, it's not right. So anger in and of itself is not wrong. It's what you do with it that becomes the right or the wrong. The warning here, and we're going to deal with that in just a second, but the warning here is don't sin in your angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, giving it place in your heart, because in doing so, you will give the devil an opportunity. Another Greek word I'd like to put before you for meditation it's the word topos, where we get our word for topography, which means a place or ground. And, and here's what the scripture's saying that in our anger, we give a place for the devil to stand. We give him a little piece of our heart. So I'm not talking about demon possession or anything, I'm just talking about the tactics, the schemes of the evil one, when we are moved to the place we say, that's not right, and we don't know what to do with our, that's not right. So, today I don't want to ask you to forgive as much as I want to ask you to know what it means to have a forgiving spirit. 
So I don't think I put these up one at a time. So some of you are going to read ahead. So uh, all right, but let's let's go ahead and 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 let me go over these of what it means to have a forgiving spirit. To have a forgiving spirit is not you saying that the wrong is all right. I'm going to play with words here for a minute. It's not you saying that the wrong is all right. It's wrong. It's still wrong. And for you to say you're trying to forgive doesn't mean you weren't wronged or it's not wrong. But a forgiving spirit, though it's not saying that the wrong is all right, and it is also not saying that it doesn't need to be made right. There's nothing wrong with you wanting a wrong to be made right. There's nothing wrong with you wanting justice in legal system. There's nothing wrong with you wanting justice and clarity in a relationship. When it's wrong, it's okay for you to want the wrong to be made right. But here's what's not okay. It's not okay for you to demand the right to make the wrong right. That's why James would say in, did I get the, didn't get the reference up there, did I? That's why James would say that we're to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then he goes on to say that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Revenge is mine saith the Lord. And I'm wondering this morning, we don't have to all sit around and think if we can think about somebody we have to forgive. <laughs> you know, if, if you hadn't already thought of that person, then, then don't, you know, don't worry about it, okay? But if you have, can, can we just talk for just a minute about the schemes of the devil? Don't give the evil one, a place to control your focus, to control your passion, to control your desires. Don't get consumed in evening the score and even demanding the justice your way. I'm not saying that the wrong is all right. I'm not saying that the wrong doesn't need to be made right. I am saying, would you be willing to do as Jesus did when the scripture says he kept entrusting himself to the Lord, the one who could do something about it? So Ephesians goes on to say, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God forgave you. That's what we're going to say at the Lord's table. What are you going to say when you walk up here? What's your prayer going to be? His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. I deserve to be punished. He took it. I deserve to die. He died for me. I deserve to pay for my own sin. He paid for my sin. Entrusting it to the Lord. 
And this morning, there may be some really unresolved conflict in your life. Someone wronged you, and it's, it's really okay that you even want them caught, or you want them dealt with, or you want that to be settled. But it's not okay for that to become a consuming drive in your life where you keep demanding the right to make it right. So, be strengthened by the Lord and in His vast strength and put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against tactics of the devil. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I know in a, in a group this size that there are people in here that have been wronged, some of them incredibly wronged by others. They would not want to be in the same room with those who wronged them. They have such a broken heart over the wrong that took place. Lord, I pray that you'd help them see that you understand completely that they've been wronged and that it wasn't right. But Lord, I pray that you would deliver them from the control of needing to be the one that makes it right and that you would deliver them and put in them a forgiving spirit Lord, we know that forgiveness follows repentance. And we know that that can't be actuated in someone's life until they turn and ask for it. But we can have an attitude of entrusting ourselves to you and letting you replace the anger in our life with a spirit of hope spirit of peace and a spirit of confidence knowing that you in the Lord Jesus will one day demand everything be revealed and everything will be clear so until that day I pray that you would deliver us from the tactics the schemes of the evil one and show us how to stand in the strength of who you are and what you've done for our lives. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray.